From innovationoz.com, this is The Commercial Disco, a podcast of commercial discovery seeking the best of Australian innovation. Uh, today I'm talking to Bronwyn LeGrice, uh, Chief Executive Officer at And Health, Australia's National Digital Health Initiative. So, And Health, welcome, Bronwyn. Thanks, James. Uh, look, I wanted to firstly just And Health. Can you talk to me about the genesis of the of the organisation, like its its structure and how you came to be? Sure. So we're a non-profit, industry-led business accelerator for digital health entrepreneurs and innovators. We came to existence after I ran an IPO for a company called Adherium, which was a connected health company. And in roadshowing that company around the world, it became clear to me that whilst other countries were looking at emerging technologies in healthcare that were digital in nature, such as digital therapeutics, behaviour change, empowered patient uh, is a great book, um, theory by Eric Topol around how we engage patients in healthcare and change outcomes and using digital tech at frontline healthcare as a treatment, not just as a system. And then I came back to Australia and we were still very much focused on the My Health Record, which is an essential piece of infrastructure, but we were really focused on the digitalisation of medical records as digital health. And that's not how the world sees it. And it's a massively fast-growing investment class and um, industry globally. And we weren't really doing anything. And I met a bunch of entrepreneurs that couldn't find anywhere to go to for information. So I was chatting to some industry friends to be honest and and said look I think there's an unmet need here and it doesn't look like there's any existing structure to service it so I think we can bring our industry expertise to help these entrepreneurs. Okay and talk to me about the the structure in terms of funding I think you get some from the growth centre MTP Connect the the MedTech growth centre. So we're very generously supported by MTP Connect who match our member contributions so our Our financial members within our membership structure all pay for the benefit of being an industry participant in the program. We're matched by MTP Connect and then we've recently just launched a couple of early stage, earlier stage education programs in partnership with LaunchVic and our members. Okay, and by financial members, what what do they look like? What's a, a typical member of? So what we tried to do is get a, well, I call it harnessing the collective, which is a lovely jargon-laden phrase, but for me, harnessing the collective was looking across all the complicated and quite multi-layered sectors that impact on digital health, the pharma sector, the medical device sector, public health, um, the reimbursement frameworks, the regulators, the innovators, the clinicians, the clinical sites, medical research institutes, and we look to bring together a multi-sectoral, multidisciplinary group of members. So we, we have in our membership, for example, Nevada's Pharmaceuticals the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, Planet Innovation, RMIT University, Curve Tomorrow, HealthXL, who are international, Potential X, who do a lot of benchmarking in frontline hospital systems. And we've worked beyond that to build out an ecosystem network. So we work with industry associations and we work with service providers. Um, We partnered just recently, finalised our partnership with Allen's Linklaters across IP and and commercial law. So what we look to do is bring together a set of members who had a very broad-reaching skill set and proven experience in commercialisation in digital health. So they have to be able to point to having done it, having done it, either developed a product 
or raised a significant amount of money or done a large international transaction in the space in right. order to work around our company. So it's all about bringing that proven expertise that's here in Australia around our new and emerging companies. Okay, and effectively you're, you're, you're an accelerator? You describe yourself as an accelerator? Is the, well, it's the word that everybody understands. So I think we probably have a slightly different model to most accelerators. We don't take equity. We're non-profit. We're an industry good program. Um, as a former venture capitalist, people ask me, what's the business model for Ant Health? And I said, I say there basically isn't one. It is there to develop an industry that's currently not supported. Okay. And so, I mean, this is a bit of an odd question maybe, but are we any good at this stuff? Like, like you're saying that, like, I know that we're quite good both on commercialisation and research in the kind of biomedical field and, and in medtech. Digital health, are we any good at it? So the way I look at it is quite... I don't know, I take a high view, which is I've been around in this sector for 18 months, by which I call it kind of the innovation health sector, so medtech, pharma, life sciences. And in that 18 years, we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in in reaching the highly competitive position we have in pharma, biotech and in medtech. We as in Australia. Yeah, Yeah, as Australia. Digital health is the new emerging sector. So when I first entered, it was all about biotech. Biotech was everything. Then it was medtech. And digital health is the emerging sector. And my personal view is that if we don't invest in digital health because it impacts on the success of the pharma and medtech sectors, we risk compromising that that investment that we've already made in global competitiveness in those other sectors. So that's my view. Are we any good at it? Absolutely. Okay. And and you've got the numbers to show that, I take it, through uh, exits or people going through the program. Yeah, sure. So we've just finalised our end of March metrics. So we onboarded our first company in October 2017. So we're not particularly old ourselves. Since then, our two cohorts of companies, so 10 companies, we've seen one exit, which was the exit of Dose Me to Tabula Rasa, which was an amazing um, validation of the power of our digital health technologies here in Australia. Our cohort companies have raised over $15.5 million in that 18 months. They've generated 74 new jobs and five new CXO executive roles. And they've undertaken 292 commercial pilots in 18 months. So I think, um, I mean, that's a, a, a validation of our program, but B, it just shows that you can actually generate really cool, measurable outcomes from programs. And I'd be remiss of me if I don't mention this because I have a clinician on my team. Since we started, we've... Our companies have served almost 20,000 patients. Right. So they're, they're actually changing lives. They're not theory. They're not bench top. They're, they're things that change patient lives. Okay. Can I just say, uh, like, it does, it, it is an unusual, like, it's, it's had an unusual genesis, if you like. Um, like, I would say, and even the funding arrangements, MTP Connect is an industry growth centre, um, where you guys are not, but you're funded by them, you're kind of an adjunct. Um, but maybe it was remiss of, uh, of uh, you know, <coughs> seems remiss that maybe you guys, like you play the role of an industry growth centre. Wouldn't that be fair to say? Like you kind of, you, you're connecting the bigger, you know, multinationals to the smaller, smaller companies, is that? Yeah, sure. I think I have a passion for industry development. So I think there's definitely a role of, and health is currently filling an unmet market need in supporting a new sector that doesn't currently have any natural funding source. So we 
digital health tends to kind of get um, talked about around a whole bunch of different areas, health, ICT, medtech, pharma, and it doesn't really have a natural home because it does enable across that continuum. So we are an industry development agency. We're not as big as an industry growth centre. I certainly probably wouldn't want to roll with that many stakeholders personally. I love what we do, but we're very focused, which is can we change the commercial outcomes for digital health companies that are in Australia? Can we stop our budding digital health entrepreneurs taking their technologies at extraordinarily early stages to the Bay Area, jumping into Y Combinator and never coming back? And we've got plenty of examples of that. And then can we stop our digital health companies or can we support our digital health companies by providing a qualified place for them to come and get information specific to the commercialisation in their sector versus them going through tech incubators or medical device incubators where they're getting advice that is not actually aligned to a commercialisation pathway in digital health. Okay, Uh, here's a a general question. What's In terms of the development of those companies, um, what's the biggest What's the biggest obstacle? What's the biggest obstacle that a government could either remove a blockage or add a policy that that makes it easier? That's a difficult question in that the commercialisation pathway globally is still being kind of felt out in this space. But I, I think where we see companies needing the most help is not in the clinical evidence gathering. So I think when we set this up, myself and James Dromey from the Murdoch Children's, we thought it was all about clinical evidence. Lots of people out there making claims around their tech without clinical trials data. Most of the companies we see now know they need clinical data. What they don't understand and don't have is an economic model, so a model that will enable them to build a business off the back of that. And one of the biggest barriers to that is the way that we reimburse healthcare. So in Australia, for example, we should, in my view, lead the world in telehealth technology because we have the perfect place to do it. But one of the leaders in telehealth technology globally is Ontario in Canada. And one of the reasons that they're so successful is there's a business there because the the reimbursement is managed. So there's a reason for doctors to engage with the telehealth platform. Recently in in the US, the FDA have increased the number of reimbursement codes for remote patient monitoring. So doctors are paid to review the reports of your wearable when it's a clinical grade wearable so that they're incentivized to use these tools that push healthcare out of that frontline clinic. Our reimbursement frameworks are just not really keeping up with not just the technology, but potentially with our Australian patient population's expectations of healthcare. And some of those, they're very complex financial and policy and legislative things to change. Um, But I can't see how we get to a fully connected, cutting-edge healthcare system, which, by the way, is probably the only way we can afford our healthcare system in the future, unless those really institutionalised structures start to change. Okay, and that conversation hasn't really started, has it? No, I mean, it, it started, but not in a public sense. I mean, there's plenty of people around talking about it. And yeah. certainly the uh, TGA just put out a great p- consultation paper on software as a medical device. So how they're going to regulate digital technologies that make health claims and ensuring that right. they do have the clinical data and that they can verify their claims. But the regulatory approval, I guess, is that third-party validation. That's the first step. The next step is, should we really be looking at this as 
is some of these technologies as medical software as a service and we should be looking at how we reimburse them maybe as medical services. But there certainly needs to be a change. There's a great case study company called WellDoc in the US. Um, They have an app called Bluestar. It's approved by the FDA as a therapy for type 2 medical, for type 2 diabetes. So it's a medical grade app. Um, I happen to be fortunate enough to know the, the founder and chief strategy officer and we had him in Australia last year and he said, you know, I had to go there and we had a clinical trial data and uh, they said it's a drug, you have to prove it's safe. His joke, what are they going to do, swallow the phone? Yeah. But they literally have a prescription app and an over-the-counter app and they are reimbursed as a frontline treatment in as an adjunct to a current drug by the reimbursement system. And you know, that's transformative. That gives people, they can prove sustained behaviour change and sustained clinical outcomes. We should have those technologies available. Okay, so I take it... You- you're working directly with um, health agencies, either at state or federal level, on some of those. So we do. Issues. We're a really small team. So we we try to select where we do our policy work for the greatest impact. What we try to do is educate and influence as to the potential in the sector and also the types of roadblocks we see. We published a report last year that, that unpicked some of these challenges, and and we try to work where we can with those that we feel have the capability capacity to change things and just on you mentioned potential of the sector have you got a number like what's the so what's the address there's a group well there's a group in the states called startup health and they do investment numbers that they say global they're probably not that in depth outside the us and europe but that they said over 15 billion was invested in in digital health last year across across the kind of range of seed to, to late stage VC. We've seen some deals in the space, specifically the Flatiron um, health acquisition by Roche was $1.9 billion. There's certainly a lot of potential for us to build really amazing global companies here because the one thing about software-based or digital-based products or even connected devices is that through software linkages you can actually scale and distribute more effectively from far off countries than you can yeah. a kind of you know a pill for example and what about uh in terms of access to data and open data things like my health record uh or even you know other aggregated kind of health system data i would have thought australia was pretty good at that stuff is that is that right is that correct or not i spoke about something about this last week I think open data is great, but I think we we often – I mentioned earlier a guy called Eric Topol who talks about the way that the system is designed to tell the patient what they can do and what they can't do and that they need to listen to whoever is in the system telling them what to do. And I think we've almost gotten to that point with data. So my health record, it having a centralised health record, which is a data repository of critical information, is a really important piece of infrastructure. I think with open data, we haven't done a very good job in Australia of educating the population as to what the, the use of data is mm. and seeking consent and informed consent about how it's used. It's been proven that the de-identification metrics that are used globally can be reversed by agile thinking data yeah. companies. So... Just saying it's de-identified, I don't think, addresses the cause of 
like the root cause of the issue. I think we need to start looking at privacy by design. We need to start looking at informed consent. We need to start addressing the fact that we've got lots of surveys that say everyone would donate their, their data to health and medical research, but they didn't when they had the opportunity on an opt-in basis. So where's the cognitive dissonance between what this survey is asking them and what they actually think? And I don't think we address that because I think it's convenient not to. Right. Okay. Um, so, so, all right. So, Australian Digital Health Agency, do you work directly? Yeah. Yeah. So, they were a co-publisher on our report last year and we've had some ongoing conversations with them about their innovation in their strategy and we're keen to help. Uh, we also work with the Digital Health CRC on the same basis. So, we're an industry partner of that. So, there's some really big funding initiatives that have very broad remits. I think where we differ as we try to be very specific about let's get these companies and scale them. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm a commercial person, so I guess this I want to do commercial stuff. So procurement as a procurement as a as an industry development lever, you would think so the, the state health departments or the state health systems are, are big buyers of of um, of products coordinated, I guess, maybe by the Commonwealth. So sure. So how how are you talking to them to make sure that they're open to this, you know, to the idea of trying these new Australian products or Australian digital startups? You know, I'm a big fan of focusing on the stuff you're good at. So the stuff that we're good at is making sure the companies are strong enough to have those conversations around procurement, because nothing will shut down that procurement channel faster than a bunch of companies who are not ready, that don't have sufficient rigour, that don't have a scalable platform, that don't have clinical data, you shove them into that procurement funnel through some incentivisation program and something goes wrong, then that procurement funnel is gone. I would prefer to make sure that what we're developing is good and then go to people with an opportunity. And so we've seen that in our cohort companies and the commercial pilots they've been doing. A lot of them are actually not in Australia. So from an investability perspective too, we have to actually address the the elephant in the room, which is if a company comes to a VC in Australia and their entire investment proposition, based on the amount of money we know it takes to get one of these guys through clinical trials and approved, if their only market is Australia, it's very hard for an investor to see how they can get the returns that their investors would require. Sure. So, so they have to be internationally scalable. So, but by, but by the same token, if you've got New South Wales Health as a as a you know off out of the blocks customer, mm. so you so you have you know yeah the best capital is revenue from a customer, and it's a referenceable site. I mean, New South Wales Health would be of any of the health departments around Australia would be sure great sure yeah we know those guys they're great and um, I think sandboxes have a good place to play there right? because, again, to get the data you have to have gone yeah. through. You know, some of these digital health companies that we look at, they're 10, 15 years in the making yeah. before they hit the market. Are there, are, there, are there sandboxes out there now in this country? I think there are sandboxes in, 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 in programs and, and I think that's definitely certainly something I've heard ADHA talk about is how do we right. make the My Health Record and, and the infrastructure available to innovators. Yeah. I think you can incentivise procurement. One of the biggest issues, I think, a lot of the digital health economic models, which are not yet economic models, so they don't work bluntly, is that I'm going to say 80% of the companies we screen, and we've screened almost 200, 80%, probably 80%, would say, 
we can save the health system X amount of money per patient with X disease per year, right? Yeah. And we go, that's awesome. But that doesn't mean there's an incentive for them to pay you to do it. And that's where we get the mismatch. We talk about value-based care, but if you went to a lawyer within a health system and say, I know that I can save you 10 grand per patient per year, let's do a contract that says at the end of the year for the patients we've saved you that money, we'll keep 30%, you have 70%, all yeah. good. The, basically, the contracting framework doesn't even exist, let alone reimbursement framework. Yeah. So... That value-based care thing is really great aspirationally. The reality of trying to contract for that risk-based, and we've seen some companies do it successfully, but it's really difficult. And again, that comes down to healthcare being very complex in the layers of funding and where they come from and who authorises what and who does what. And navigating those in a way that you can get a sustainable pay if your business is really tricky. And procurement's just one part of that. So one one way of saying procurement is, so a GP is much more like, or a GP practice or a network practice is much more likely to buy something if their clinicians are reimbursed to read the reports it generates, for example. But they're not at the moment. So there's no incentive. So the incentives are layered through. It's not just procurement into health systems. It's kind of everywhere. Sure. Okay. Uh, Innovation in Science Australia, uh, they 2030 report, it was written over two years one of the central recommendations of that was this moonshot challenge for Australia to make Australia the healthiest nation on earth. Sure. Now, and the industry development component of that was that in order to be the healthiest nation on earth, we'd have to be, you know, become very good at this kind of stuff. Sure. In addition to, um, you know, a whole, whole bunch of other areas. So, given, uh, I mean, I guess I just wanted to ask a general question. Health was front and centre in this two-year, you know, report two years in the making, and yet it seems to have dropped out of sight. What's going on with health? Well, I think innovation's dropped out. So anything that was under the banner of innovation has almost dropped out. So health is clearly centrepiece of this election campaign. Yeah. But we're not talking about health innovation. We're talking about frontline healthcare, reimbursement, treatments, kind of real stuff. I think the moonshot is a really good idea. I think those really massive programs, again, I come back to focus. Uh, They're really good aspirationally. Affecting them is difficult. We've got some interesting pieces of that with with my health record and the digital health CSE, but also all the health and medical research work happening, the cancer genomics work happening, which is fascinating, precision medicine. We're good at this stuff. In order for us to make, and this is a slightly different take on this, in order for us to be the healthiest nation on earth, we actually have to engage Australians. Yeah. So we need to make them feel empowered. The biggest single change that we can make to our healthcare system is creating a nation of empowered patients. So I think with those moonshots, the big thing for me is let's, empower people to learn about and be better at managing their own healthcare. Healthcare is a negative good. Nobody wants to need healthcare. Your biggest competitor, if you're trying to disrupt healthcare, is inertia. Failure to change, biggest competitor, because you're in a system that has centuries of risk aversion built into the very molecular structure of everything around it. So to disrupt it, 
you need to still look and feel like you're a reputable healthcare provider. You have to have evidence, you have to have security, you have to have those things. But the real way of disrupting healthcare is to find a way to empower general everyday Australians to understand and engage in their own health. That's yeah. not really a policy. It's more an ideological statement than a policy statement. Well, but yeah, that's but what I a, believe. But from a digital perspective, it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a practical thing as well, isn't it? Sure, but I think empowering patients too, that's not give everyone a Fitbit, by the way. Yeah. That's health education programs. We don't, we don't educate very well about health. Over 40% of our population is health illiterate. You could give them the best tool in the world, but they wouldn't use it because they don't yeah. understand. How do we change that? That goes back to education. So it's, it's a really integral part of, of kind of a whole bunch of different areas. Okay, look, I'm going to uh, finish up just shortly. I'm Bronwyn LeGrice from Ant Health. Obviously, there's an election coming up, so... <laughs> Yeah, I guess in terms of the space that you operate in, what's what's the wish list? Like, what what do you need to see more of? Do you need, you know, do we have access to skills here? Do we have access, you know, our, is our visa program working? Access to capital is our. What what's what's on your agenda for for the election? I don't know if it's for the election because I just have an agenda, generally. If that's all right. One of the things is I'd like to see less focus on jargon and more focus on outcomes. So we talk a lot about startups. We're pumping money into startups and the startup lingo and everyone can be an entrepreneur. We're not really pumping the same level of money and taking those startups that are kind of interesting and turning them into 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 person businesses. We're, t- we're eighth in the world at generating new businesses, we're last at scaling them. So let's start investing where the need is. So for me, it's about find the unmet needs and invest in them. Don't just keep filling the top of the pipeline. The second piece would be set up or enable governments to focus on rewarding outcomes. So there are no consequences in most grant programs if you fail to meet your milestones. Yeah. So let's start making people accountable for delivering outcomes. Let's measure outcomes. Let's be all about funding and, and doubling down on winners. And, and I'm not saying pick winners. I'm saying find people who are good at stuff and pay them to be better at it because there's a whole bunch of data that says you can if you take someone – average and try to make them exceptional you'll get someone good if you take someone good and you invest in making them exceptional you'll get there so let's find investor strengths investor outcomes back back organizations whether they're research institutes or industry growth centers where they where they can point to outcomes back them to do more and the second thing i think the last thing sorry for me is i'd love to see and this is a i'd love to see that institutions that sit around our economy genuinely embrace diversity. So institutions as in universities? Funding agencies, everybody embrace diversity. Boss magazine today had the six, you know, picked six of the top super funds, said these are the guys you need to know. It was six guys in suits. And I think somebody made the comment was, do they all shop in the same place? And unfortunately the answer is possibly yes. 
for me, it's change the people, change the game. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different outcome. And it's not about gender diversity, although I am a massive proponent for that because I believe if you can't represent 50% of the population equally, you've got no chance of representing any other minority to a fair extent. But it's also about people who think differently. Um, Graham Samuel did something and he got a lot of flack for talking about some comments on diversity and, you know, his, his comment was, you know, we need to be investing in young and on this thing it was women who, uh, who will challenge the status quo. Our institutions don't invite people in who have a different way of thinking. Yeah. We're not going to get a different way of thinking if we keep those people. And they're not, it's not about having a 25-year-old super bright millennial. It's about the 50, 40, 30, 20-year-olds, but it's about everyone. We've still got a kind of group of much older Australians who are in these roles and they don't necessarily invite in the naysayers and the big thinkers and the the people who think that things can be done differently. And until we invite that robust discussion into our lives and into our institutions, change will always be incremental. All right. Um, Le Grice, thank you. Uh, thank Thanks, you very James. Much.